the Romans in a dank parade. Hi, and thanks for downloading. I'm Ancient Blogger, and if you go to ancientblogger.com, you can find articles on ancient history I've written, as well as links to my YouTube channel, Facebook page, and all sorts of content. I'm also on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, so come and say hi. In 507 BC, a new law came into effect in Athens. It was called Ostracism, named after the Ostraka, the bits of broken pottery which were used as voting tokens. Each year, Athenian citizens could vote to exile a colleague for 10 years. It was like the bad side of social media, except a bit more civil. When looked at, ostracism seems riddled with contradictions. For example, why go through a lengthy process only for a temporary exile? Then there are the idiosyncrasies. 6,000 votes needed to make the vote legitimate. Why this figure exactly? It all seems quite peculiar except when you start looking at it more closely and understand both the rationale for these as well as the influences. In this podcast, I'm going to do just that. To start with, I'll be sketching out the period before ostracism to find the themes and motifs which ostracism was developed to respond to. Moving on, I'll unwrap the process itself and examining these somewhat curious elements. Finally, I'll look at the arguments concerning it including some notable ostracisms and why they may have occurred. As I've just mentioned, ostracism came into law in 507 BC, although I should recognise that there are some arguments that put it much closer to the first known ostracism of 487 BC, and I will deal with this at the final part of the podcast. But for now, we'll go with the generally accepted date of 507 BC. I'm also going to stop saying BC and take it that all reference to dates are BC. We start then 80 or so years before ostracism came into practice, and in a seminal time for Athens. It was in this period, the 590s, that Solon's reforms took place in Athens. The general outcome, though debated as to the extent, is that the reforms gave more political power to the poorer classes. Sadly, the overall reforms didn't last long, and the result was that great fear all small dogs had, a vacuum. Within this political space, three contenders came into reckoning for the control of Athens. There were Megacles, Lycurgus, and Pisistratus. Each was essentially an aristocrat or faction leader. Pisistratus was already a popular figure in Athens, having won victories against Megara, but with three factions equally balanced, Pisistratus turned to a gimmick to get an advantage over his rivals. Herodotus tells us the story in book one of his histories, chapter 59 if you're interested, wherein a bruised and battered Pisistratus arrived in the Agora. His story was that his enemies had attacked him as he returned to Athens, and he asked the people to give him a bodyguard of men, which they duly did. This might be one of the earliest false flags I can think of. Pisistratus had beaten himself up, no one else had touched him, but this worked, and he got his bodyguard. With this, he took control of the Acropolis, and thus Athens. Before we go any further, I need to comment on the bodyguard. Firstly, he chose his bodyguard to be armed with clubs rather than spears or swords. This might seem a trivial matter until you realise the symbolism behind it. James McGlue, in his book Tyranny and Political Culture in Ancient Greece, makes the argument that the clubs were strongly associated with Hercules and Dike, which was the Greek concept of justice. It's not a weapon which kills, but instead looks to punish wrongdoers and correct bad behaviour. The association with Hercules wasn't exactly a bad choice. 
but the recruitment of such a bodyguard, however it was armed, was something often linked to tyrants. And why might this be important? Well, Pisistratus came to power as a tyrant, and is often referred to as one. Tyranny was a common form of rule at this time. Defining what it was isn't as easy as you might think. The basic premise was that a tyrant came to power outside of the normally accepted avenues. They weren't elected, nor did they inherit their power. In short, they were political opportunists, who assumed power through force and in a time of stasis. Politically, the word stasis is used to describe a high level of instability, usually brought on by competing factions. In this instance, the rivalry between the three factions became so grave that no political solution could be offered to keep them quiet. It was a competition for outright control, and Pisistratus was the winner. Whilst a tyrant might enjoy the trappings of supreme leader, he was only ever playing a short game. Way before the establishment of a music industry, the average tyrant, were he to survive long enough, would have the second album syndrome when his heir came to rule. If you took a city by opportunism and force, you had a difficult time convincing anyone that your heir was legitimate and that the conventions you'd shunned and worked outside of suddenly needed to be respected for the sake of your son. Perhaps the most important thing to understand about tyrants is the very use of the word tyrant. For us it carries a pejorative connotation. Tyrants are bad and wicked folk who only act in their best interests. Yet someone in complete control of a city could do a lot of good. In the case of Pisistratus, we have quite the benevolent ruler. Both Herodotus and Thucydides comment favourably on Pisistratus' rule of Athens. Though he shock horror brought in taxes, the first time this had occurred, much of this went on improving the city and its facilities, as well as culturally enriching it. The great Dionysia, which established Greek theatre, was one such example. Pisistratus took a cultural practice which had occurred in Attica and set it in Athens. Ironically, the development of Greek theatre has always been twinned with democracy, but it was a tyrant who helped embed it in Athens. If watching drama wasn't your thing and instead you wanted races involving chariots, boats and the Euandria, which was essentially a male beauty contest, then you were in luck. Pisistratus is largely credited with developing the Greater Panathenaea, which was another instance of taking a known activity and making it a far grander affair. Pisistratus wasn't just great at festivals. The economy of Athens grew impressively under him. By focusing on olive oil production, Athens created a valuable resource which was traded across the Mediterranean. And for those of you who have watched my vlogs on Greek vases, you might remember the trade in this with places as far as Sicily and Italy. Much like the chaps in Euandria, Athens was flexing its muscles. Of course, tyrants weren't always popular, particularly amongst the higher classes who, under a tyrant, lost any real political power. Unless, of course, they were related to or on very good terms with the tyrant. Tyrants might be bad or good, but this could be a subjective reaction to them, as opposed to a widely accepted definition. One of the tyrants, called Pittacus, was labelled pot-bellied by Alcius. Body shaming is nothing new. Yet Pittacus is one of the seven sages of Greece. If you've listened to any of my podcasts, and I hope you have, you'll know that I can't resist a good story. So when you have one involving Pisistratus, which Herodotus calls the silliest trick which history has to record, I feel obliged to recall it. As you might know, Pisistratus was exiled twice. His second return to power reminds me of that saying, behind every powerful man there's a woman. Near to Athens was a village called Pania, in which Phyle, 
a very tall and attractive woman lived. Pisistratus dressed her up as Athena, put her on a chariot where he drove around, spreading rumours that he was intent on bringing Athena back to Athens. This apparently worked, and Pisistratus was welcomed back, but perhaps Herodotus isn't telling the whole story. Pisistratus' return had been facilitated by an alliance with one of the factions in Athens, so it's more probable that this was another gimmick, probably a procession of sorts. Let's not forget that bringing a deity into a place or city wasn't an unknown concept. Perhaps having someone playing dress-up was, though. In 527, Pisistratus died, and we're only 20 years away from the ostracism law coming into effect. What made it possible was a series of events occurring with his sons, Hippias and Hipparchus, and what I refer to earlier as the second album syndrome. Things initially went well under Hippias, but in 514, Hipparchus was assassinated by two nobles called Harmodius and Aristogiton, who were killed as a result. The pair became known as the Tyrannicides, and later celebrated, but at that time it's arguable they did more harm than good. This event turned Hippias into the sort of tyrant you're more familiar with, and the only upside was that it didn't last too long. In 510 he was deposed by the Spartan king Cleomenes, who'd come to aid the Athenians despite being on good terms with him. It's argued that this was due to pressure placed on the Spartans by the Oracle of Delphi. Was this due to a sense of altruism and wanting to aid their fellow man? Or was it because one of the factions, known as the Alcamunids, exiled by Hippias, had recently refurbished the main temple there? A leading Alcmanid was a chap called Cleisthenes, and he faced off against Isagoras back in Athens for control. It all feels a tad reminiscent of the situation following the reforms of Solon. Yet this time, the stasis had not just attracted a possible tyrant, but another polis in the form of Sparta, and I think this had a considerable effect on the Athenians. Politically, Isagoras was very close to what the Spartans would like to see in Athens, an aristocrat who wanted to return to an oligarchic system. The Spartans helped install him, and Cleisthenes added more miles to his exile card. Yet, this was obviously highly unpopular. It's debated to what extent the lower classes in Athens really engaged with the political structure, but reverting to an oligarchy would remove them from any representation. Even with a small Spartan force supporting him, Isagoras was soon kicked out of Athens. When Cleisthenes returned, he probably realised that the genie was truly out of the bottle when it came to what the poor wanted. His reforms, dating to around 508, are famous, and it's from them that a new political system, what we know as democracy, emerged. Needless to say that ostracism fell well within the scope of this new political brand. Before I go into the actual process of ostracism, it's worth summing up what I've been talking about, because it's where I see the continual themes which ostracism responded to. The overarching lesson was that stasis, Greek civil and political strife or conflict, was bad. Well, that's not exactly a eureka statement, but more specifically, stasis nourished a number of situations which were not ideal. Firstly, there was tyranny, and yes, I know, I pointed out how this wasn't always a bad thing. But for most Athenians, the more recent experience was Hippias and the intentions of Isagoras. Even fresher in their minds must have been how Stasis had brought Spartans into the city. The recent experience most Athenians had was that Stasis simply invited the wrong type of attention, and this must have been felt more sharply 
as Athens had truly been on the up recently with its economic and cultural engine ticking along nicely. Stasis risked everything. Stasis also resulted in mass exiles, which occurred to tyrants and the enemies of tyrants. This simply wasn't a sustainable option for a polis which wanted to achieve anything. Mass exiles may not have always hit the poor, but they certainly affected what we might term the middle classes. These were the traders, producers and expansionists. They also know how to run the administrative aspects of the state. They kept it cohesive and functioning. I now move on to the process of ostracism, what happened and how it functioned. I hope that much of the potted history I've given up until this point starts to find traction in relation to the aspects of ostracism. So, what exactly happened? In January of each year, a vote was taken in the assembly as to whether an ostracism was required. If the answer was yes, then this would lead to an ostracophoria, which took place a couple of months later, around March time. Where the initial vote took place in the assembly, the ostracophoria took place in the agora. Each tribe would have its own entrance to a fenced-off area, and they would deposit their ostraca, or pottery shard, with the name of the person they were voting for inscribed upon it. For a vote to be held valid, there needed to be at least 6,000 votes in total. The person with the largest number of votes would have 10 days to arrange their affairs before leaving Athens for 10 years. The process is ripe for comment, and there are several aspects to it which demand a closer look. To start with, the initial vote was an automatic feature. Ostracism was a possibility each year, and not simply set aside just in case. Athens had its finger hovering over the button. It was a warning, and I'll deal with whom the warning was aimed at later. The democratic credentials of ostracism are firmly stamped through having its vote in the assembly. It ticks the core democratic value of participation. The fact that it occurred annually also enhanced this value. Imagine you're based outside of Athens, in Attica. If there was an ad hoc vote on ostracism, it might never come to your attention, or leave you with little time to make your way to Athens. However, if you knew that it would take place each January, you could make plans to be there if you wanted to vote. The delay between the vote to start the process and the ostracophoria funds yet more questions. Was it to allow a larger and fuller participation? Or could there be some sort of campaigning involved? And why was there a set amount of 6,000 votes needed? As we have seen, the organisation of it was quite complex. You needed to have people arrive and vote in their respective tribe. This ruled out a quicker time frame. As for campaigning, well, there is a possibility that this took place. But I find it hard to accept on a grand scale for two reasons. Firstly, the initial vote needed to give a yes. And presumably, all these people voting already had a candidate in mind. I'd imagine that people were more inclined to vote if they had someone they wanted out, rather than simply voting yes and then deciding on who they'd vote for later. Secondly, how, how would campaigning work? There was no mass media and tribes would spread across different areas. You might be able to influence some people, but there needed to be 6,000 votes minimum. A winning candidate would therefore need a large number of votes. At best, we can work with speculative models concerning population size in Athens and Attica in the 5th century BC. A figure which I have seen most commonly is around 40,000 adult male citizens. Remember, women, slaves and metics could not vote. 6,000 was around 15% therefore of the eligible voter population. It's quite a number. 
Just for the sake of fun, which is something I never thought I'd say near statistics, 15% of the voting eligible populace of the USA is 35 million. It's just under 4 million for Canada and just under 7 million for the UK. That's a lot of pottery shards. The 6,000 votes or quorum needed may therefore have acted as a check and balance for the whole process. Had it been a smaller requirement, there could have been temptation for the vote for an ostracism to be undertaken more on a whim. If people didn't think there would be 6,000 votes or more in total, because there was no obvious candidates, perhaps they would therefore just not vote that year or vote no. The requirement of 6,000 votes in the Ostrakophoria ensured that it was taken seriously. The basic premise of the two votes and the numbers needed don't seem as curious when you look at them in this way. There's a neat symbiosis going on here. Before we go any further, I should give time to the Ostraka or Ostrakon, the pottery shards which served as the votes. The use of voting tokens wasn't anything new. Ajax in the Iliad wins the right to fight Hector when his voting token is the one randomly chosen. Another duel, this time between Paris and Menelaus, involved each having a token placed in a bronze helmet. The helmet was then shaken to see whose token came out first. Why might this be? Well, this decided who got to cast their spear first. The winner, by the way, was Paris. Not that it really helped much. It wasn't just fictional characters using Ostraka. Apparently there was a game which Athenian children would play called Ostrakinda. It was a game of tag played with two teams. Who got to chase first was decided by tossing a pottery shard in the air and the lighter or darker side acting as the heads or tails of a coin. Having a name inscribed in a voting token brings up the hot topic of literacy in ancient Greece. You might be familiar with the anecdote concerning Aristides, who ended up being ostracised, and was so honest he helped someone carve his name on their shard of pottery. As you might imagine, there's debate as to whether some Ostraka were pre-written, and so would have been handed out accordingly to who you wanted to vote for, or whether they were inscribed at the time of the vote, perhaps by educated slaves or someone else. Professor Paul Cosmin offers a fascinating insight into the nature of what was written on the Ostraka in an article for Classical Antiquity, volume 34, titled A Phenomenology of Democracy, Ostracism as a Political Ritual. Professor Cosmin argues how many Ostraka were more than simply voting tokens, and that they, and indeed ostracism, could be seen as a ritual which held magical associations. For example, take the Ostraka with magical symbols and even animals inscribed on them. One had a mullet inscribed upon it, a fish, associated with Hecate. There was also an Ostraka with the word hunger on it, and though this might be, pun intended, a tongue-in-cheek vote, there was a practice of banishing negative concepts in the Greek city-states. One such example saw hunger personalised at a ceremony and then driven from the city, and this made me think of Aristophanes, where concepts are given form and courted accordingly. Athenians didn't just limit themselves to the more esoteric, as Professor Cosmin observes, some of the Ostraga had the names of the candidate in the accusative and dative cases in them, as well as the nominative. The existence of the accusative and dative support Professor Cosmin's conclusion that they were inscribed as part of a verbal ritual which was aimed against the name of the person they had voted for. This could also get quite personal. Comments such as adulterer, mead, traitor and accursed were found on Ostraka. We can only imagine what may have been written if they each had 140 characters. Professor Cosmin also saw what he termed a scatter vote within the Ostraka, 
This is the vote for a candidate who was largely unknown and stood no real chance of being ostracised. Perhaps it was a person who'd been rude to you or a trader who'd fallen out with you. In purely social terms, it must have provided a valve of sorts to diffuse more minor rivalries or squabbles. Whether it was to set a wider political tension or a more personal one, the writing of names and public casting of the names into the agra, an area heavy with associations, may have acted as a balm. You could think of it as a wasted vote, but it had social value. With all this in mind, we should turn back to the Ostrakophoria. Let's say you were the highest counted name and at least 6,000 Ostraka had been cast. What next for you? Given that such resource had been poured into the ostracism, you might think the end result would be severe. I suppose it was. Ten years away from Athens, it's likely you could still live in Attica, but it was harsh, especially given life expectancy. Yet were you to survive and return, you'd pick up as you'd left off, with full rights and your property restored to you. Was this in some ways a cop-out? Much of ostracism was defining what Athens, and thus the democracy, was. If someone was ostracised, the reason for it was a threat, which I'll come to later, and this threat was severe, hence the quorum of votes needed. Moderation was therefore a response which looked a calmer situation. Tyrants and the like had not only exiled others permanently, but also their families and followers. The democracy needed to show that it wouldn't behave in such a way. It was different. More importantly, it was better. I also wonder if the idea of the moderate exile kept the ostracised person on a good behaviour bond. It wouldn't paint them into a corner. They hadn't lost it all, meaning the only way back to Athens was at the head of an army or uprising. And let's face it, prior to Cleisthenes, that had been something of an occurrence. And this was the real threat. The monster under the bed for Athens wasn't a specific faction or person. It was a political climate, what I referred to earlier as stasis. Ostracism was wedded to the maxim about prevention being the best cure. Following the various reforms and changes, Athens was now democratic, and a check needed to be in place against what Professor Sarah Forsdyke refers to as the intra-elite political infighting. That is to say, when the leaders of the aristocracy or factions get a bit too heated with each other and invariably fall out, leading to stasis. As I covered at the beginning of the podcast, this sort of situation never ended well, and towards the end of the 6th century, even started to involve other polis, such as Sparta. There seemed to be a consensus that ostracism was aimed purely at preventing tyranny, but laws already existed against this specifically. What ostracism aimed to do was act a check against stasis, in which a tyrant could emerge and threaten the democracy. And given how other city-states saw this new political system, Athens would do well to keep guard. I've looked at the lead-up to ostracism, what it was and what it tried to prevent. In the last section of this podcast, I'm going to consider some of the wider questions surrounding it. I'll start with the point I made right at the beginning of the podcast, the date when ostracism came into law. The widely accepted date is 507, yet there's an argument which says that ostracism only came into law a year before the first recorded use of it. The two main reasons for this are that it was enacted and not used for 20 years, and a reference made by Hippocrateion, which suggested that it was brought in far closer to 487. You can counter the first point by positing a relatively simple line of logic. Following the reforms of Cleisthenes, there weren't ongoing contests between political factions in Athens, certainly not of a scale to warrant ostracism. The reforms had restructured the tribes, the effect of which 
was dismantle the age-old clans and loyalty groups. But let's imagine that there were a few rivals, with enough political power to start butting heads. Do you think, given the recent events, and with this new law in place, they'd consider doing this? The second argument revolves around a fragment of Androtion, which was quoted by Harpocration, in which the ostracism of 487 occurred after the law being enacted. More specifically, it involves the examination of an adverb in the text, which has more than one translation possibility. The adverb relates to the immediacy of the ostracism law, and is taken as relating to an immediate context, meaning that the ostracism law occurred within a year or two of the ostracism. Yet, Professor Donald Kagan has pointed out how the adverb isn't restricted to a tight date range, and can mean something far looser. Bearing in mind that the fragment dates the middle of the 4th century BC, the more ambiguous translations, such as at this time, could relate to a date well around the 507 date. And that's before we consider that it might just be incorrect. As Professor Kagan argues, four other ancient authors have the law brought in at 507, including Aristotle. What is puzzling is the sudden appearance of five ostracisms in the 480s. The exact number of ostracisms is debated, with a figure of between 9 and 15, usually around 10 agreed. Even within this range, either a third or half of them occurred in one decade. Why? At best, we can speculate, but there are some attractive arguments. The first relates to an earlier point I made about how the reforms had disabled the clans and factions. 20 years on seems enough time for them to reappear. They might also be a newer generation of politician, who hadn't had much experience of what the stasis had led to prior to 507, and who didn't feel as put off by it. There was also the Persians, a fair few of them at that. The first of our recorded ostracisms occurred in 487, and there's a run of four consecutive years where ostracisms happened. The big event near the date of the first one was the Battle of Marathon in 490, and an event in this battle may have been the spark. According to Herodotus, members of the Alcmanid family gave a signal to the Persians. Those ostracised in 487, 486 and 485 are strongly linked to the Alcmanoid family, as well as relatives of the Pisistratids. Aristotle puts it bluntly when commenting that the ostracism of Xanthippus in 484 was the first in which the ostracised was not a friend of the tyrants. Whether or not the Alcmanids conspired with the Persians is uncertain. On the back of the experience with Spartan intervention, a mere whiff of conspiring abroad may have been enough, and it stuck. The Alcmanid family already had some form, even though Cleisthenes had been one of them. The victory at Marathon may have renewed the Athenians with faith in their political system, and therefore sought to give the aristocratic factions a reminder of who was in charge. That said, three consecutive ostracisms highlight the downside to the moderate approach of only allowing one individual to be ostracised. And it's possible that three years of ostracisms were simply Athenians working to further reduce the factional tensions deriving from this one event. Ironically, retribution upon an individual wasn't what ostracism was designed for. It was a constitutional valve in which a set of individuals from different factions were collected together and given a stern warning if stasis started to loom, with only one ostracised. As such, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking of ostracism as specific to an individual. It wasn't. It was a far blunter tool than that. With this in mind, it's worth turning to the final ostracism, dated to 416 or 415. The chap ostracised was hyperbolous, and much debate has been had as to whether he truly deserved it, 
or was simply caught up with a number of possible candidates. We don't know much about Hyperbolus apart from him being lampooned by Aristophanes for accruing his fortune from selling oil lamps. Professor Kagan paints an interesting picture of this time in which the two main political rivals were Alcibiades and Nicias. Both were at loggerheads, and Hyperbolus sought to capitalise on this by ensuring a vote for an ostracism went through, the idea being that one of the two would invariably get the boot and Hyperbolus could move into that space. In short, it backfired. Though the exact details aren't clear, it was Hyperbolus who was exiled, and here we have the blunt nature of ostracism exposed. Professor Forsteich has commented that the purpose of ostracism wasn't necessary to get rid of X. It was to use X as an example to his colleagues and rivals. It was Russian roulette, forced on the elite with exile as the bullet. Hyperbolus was the last person ostracised. It has been argued that this resulted from the misuse of ostracism being applied to Hyperbolus. He was a pitiful character, exiled not because he offered a danger, but because he was unpopular. Ostracism was now a faulted process, which the Athenians realised had been abused and duly abandoned it. However, I side with the likes of Professor Forsyth in that it simply wasn't used anymore because the political situation in Athens had changed to the point where it wasn't called upon. Using the notion of someone wrongly ostracised misses the point. It wasn't aimed at a specific person, but a group representing the elites of Athens. Therefore, this criticism is misplaced as it wasn't something ostracism ever intended to do. The idea was that by exiling Hyperbolus, the likes of Alcibiades and Nicias would temper their factions and remember the power of the people. It's probably now worth summing all of this up. Ostracism was peculiar, because it was forged at a unique time for Athens, and in response to a very specific set of scenarios. You could argue that it didn't really protect Athens from the domination of an individual, Take Pericles, for example. It just needed that individual to court the citizens and ensure that they proclaimed their democratic values at all times. But it was essential in keeping the nascent democracy free of the sort of tensions which might have caused it to stumble early on. Remember, the new political system Athens had wasn't popular with many of the other city-states. Not only was Athens becoming the shiniest bauble, it was one which could be easily plucked by another city-state if it was either able to insert its own political faction there, or raise one sympathetic to it from within. Ostracism embraced many of the core values Athens had grown to understand, unity, representation, and the importance of the people. It wasn't perfect, and it's a fair comment that leading individuals came to the fore, but it attempted to keep the political side of things as balanced as possible. Even though it was conducted in a grand scale, it could be used in a very personal one, the naming of individual on a shard as a cathartic response to city life. And all of this, even before considering the bonus points for recycling. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this. Please, as ever, rate this on iTunes and get in touch with me on Twitter, at AncientBlogger. My website, ancientblogger.com, has lots of other content, such as articles and vlogs, as well as the odd picture. Until next time, take care and keep safe. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me!